Dear trend buckers, welcome to another episode of Bucking This Trend with me, your host, Eduardo da Costa. This November, we have an amazing, very inspirational individual who has bucked the trend differently. I have the pleasure of speaking with Aaron Cesar, the director and founding director of the Delfina Foundation and its current formation in London's august Victoria, flanked by Buckingham Palace. Aaron's story is an unlikely tale, one that has, in many ways, been made more extraordinary because of the richness of his storied background and his career progression from rural Louisiana to the metropolis that is London, from a career in commercial services, in consultancy, to a degree in London in, if I'm not mistaken, something about art world management. Aaron has, for the last 20 years, been one of the foremost and most visible Black and ethnic minority directors in a London space. It was a pleasure to sit down with him with due regard to his very busy schedule and really delve in deep and ask the questions that I have been meaning to ask for a very long time. And I hope you all enjoy this. Aaron is one of the most influential people in the art market, by far. Always named in those great internet polls of polls as one of the most influential people. And it's not surprising. The Delfina Foundation in its 20-year history has spawned many a career and many a relationship that has led to a project. Such a rich food of an institution I could not miss discussing. An overview of the conversation. We touched on many a tangential issues mostly related to the idea of curation, Aaron's place in the world, and his background. Moreover, we touched on what it is to be Aaron and how he sees the world as it is now. This episode is entitled, What Will Be Will Be. We decided to break into spontaneous song at one point. I think you, you'll all enjoy it. Enjoy. Welcome to Bucking the Trend. I am so glad to have you here. The first thing I want to ask you is, is, would you kindly introduce yourself to to our audience? Thank you so much, Eduardo. It is so like really, it's my honor actually to be with you here on Bucking the Trend. I remember meeting you, wow, this might have been two or three years ago. And we were talking about, in a way, the question was, how do you situate yourself in the art world. And I think this podcast series is one kind of interesting kind of like way of doing that, right? Of placing yourself within the heart kind of of these kinds of conversations. So I'm Aaron Cesar. I'm the founding director of Delfina Foundation, and I'm from Louisiana. Thank you very much. And the first question really is just about getting stories about how you grew up. Those stories about you going to school and you discovering your love of art. Let's start. Earliest memories in art and how your Bildungsroman has developed. Well, I introduced myself as a Louisianian on purpose because it takes me right to kind of my early years, of course, as a young boy. Not that I would necessarily say that that's my most formative years in terms of art, but I'll take you back to Louisiana nonetheless. So I grew up on a very small farm in rural Louisiana. And when I say rural, I mean, it was very rural. It was far from (laughs) any kind of city, any kind of museum, from McDonald's, from a cinema, from whatever. It was a flat field in a very agricultural landscape where rice, soybeans were grown by my father, kind of by relatives, but also uh, other neighbors as well. The school that I went to was a 10 mile or maybe like 16 kilometer journey away in the nearest town. So the nearest town, the nearest traffic light, the nearest petrol store, all that sort of stuff was not within walking distance from where I grew up. Just to give you a sense of how isolated kind of my childhood was. 
And I think this is a nice kind of counter to then I'm in the heart of the art world now, sitting in London, sitting in the home of Delfina Foundation next to Buckingham Palace. Like this, an incredible journey for one to have come through, particularly since the first time I stepped in a museum probably wasn't until I was 18 or 19, to be absolutely honest with you, because there was no museums in the immediate kind of vicinity. And when you did go to the city, um, often it was to see relatives. It was maybe to shop, you know, to see a film. You know, it, it was very kind of, con- very condensed kind of experience, um, as it were. My exposure to culture as a young boy was through television, through four aerial channels that we could <laughs> get in rural Louisiana. Some of them being very staticky, you know, almost you couldn't even kind of see the picture. But it was an outlet to kind of like discover pop culture, but also to discover, you know, particularly opera and dance, like things that were videoed and documented and, and able to be broadcast on, on, on television. But my main source of like culture came from the bookmobile. So this is a moving truck of books that came from the local library. So the town being 16 miles, sorry, 16 kilometers away had uh, a library for the parish, like for the county, as it were. And they had a mobile book, sorry, <laughs> mobile truck of books. And this kind of mobile truck, the bookmobile, would visit the rural farms, the young people and families who weren't kind of within the the nearest kind of town or village. So I must have read almost every book on the bookmobile because, you know, there's not very much to watch on television. There's only so many cousins to play with. So I read. I read voraciously. I read everything from forensic psychology, you know, to incredible works by James Baldwin and Alice Walker, The Color Purple, um, a film that I also adored as a, as a as a young boy. I read literature, everything that I could, could like, you know, possibly kind of find on the bookmobile. So that was my little window into kind of culture at large. But it wasn't until I was an adult that I really started to become fascinated by visual culture. And I became fascinated through performance. Let's fast forward a little bit. Thank you for giving us that interesting insight into your formative years and and how you came across culture. Because I feel like when I've had these conversations with some of the other uh, buck trenders or trending buckers, or I don't know what I should call you guys, curators, there we go. We should just call you curators and directors of amazing institutions. I feel like your story is not as uncommon as it seems amongst at least the crop of curators I've spoken to and interviewed. There seems to be something beyond them that is a little bit more primed towards fulfilling the hunger for what culture can do for you. So my next question is, let's fast forward a few years and let's go towards when you were 18. Is is this um, when you went to college, Yale, right? Uh, I went to Princeton, in fact. My bad. <laughs> yes. Shame, shame. Shame on me. <laughs> but yeah, I went to an, an Ivy League school. You know, the resources on the bookmobile, having incredible teachers who believed in me, having a very supportive family, you know, were all the, the reasons why I applied and uh, successfully went to Princeton. They, as they say, it takes a village, you know, to kind of raise a child. And that was kind of like my scenario for sure um, in Southwest Louisiana. At Princeton is where I discovered dance first and foremost, and then via dance later in life, performance and performance to the visual arts. But as a young boy, I mean, I saw a lot of music videos, right? So this, I grew up in the 80s. So this is the era of MTV. Yeah, this is Madonna, Janet Jackson, Michael Jackson. Um, so I always knew that I had the ability to move and to move very easily. But it wasn't until I was at Princeton and I uh, started dancing with a student dance company as a hip hop dancer, by the way. And the company also included dancers who were formerly ballerinas and and they would also do pieces that were more modern and contemporary. And so when I'd watch the modern and contemporary dancers, you know, rehearse, you know, one of the works, I would always be in the back kind of emulating them, like just as copycat, you know, out of fun, you know, right, making a joke. And they would be like, actually, that's quite good. Just turn your feet out a little bit more, you know, keep your focus here when you spin. And these like, 
little tricks. You know, I started to perfect very well. And then I started taking classes at Princeton. And then my professor there was like, you should take classes at Princeton Ballet School. You need a bit more training and basis. So I started on top of, you know, pursuing a degree, you know, at Princeton. I was also taking classes at Princeton Ballet School, which was not associated with the university, but it was an excellent kind of academy, as it were. Through this experience um, of being at Princeton, I think the one thing that the Ivy, this such a liberal arts college, uh, Ivy League school, kind of gave me is as is um, much a, a wider kind of perspective you know right so we studied dance we also studied dance criticism and then through dance criticism you study visual culture and through visual culture was where I really started to kind of feel a sense of connection bringing all these different elements together I also took an incredible course with the late Nobel Prize winner in literature Toni Morrison at Princeton and this is my first exposure to the whole notion of a residency, which is, of course, what I do now. So Toni Morrison developed a residency program on Princeton's campus. She called it an atelier program. You know, so she had the French word of atelier studio, as it were. And she invited young choreographer then by the name of John Celia, who was dancing with American Ballet Theater in New York. And he had a huge interest in hip hop as a ballet dancer. And she also brought Michael Kaiser, who was then the head of the Royal Opera House here in London, although he's an American. And he was asked to head up the Royal Opera House here to turn around the Opera House because he is an incredible change manager. He worked with Alan Ailey and he worked with Dance Theater of Harlem, turning around these dance companies. He made dance sexy. He put, you know, well, he was one of the leading voices or he was one of the uh, kind of the visionaries that put like male bodies on posters for dance, right? Which of course attracted audiences, you know, things like this, like the marketing, but also the organizational structure, all this sort of stuff. Anyway, so the, the course at Princeton, this atelier program was to learn a work with John Sawyer, the choreographer, but to also understand kind of arts management and dance management via Michael Kaiser. So at the end of this course, I sat down with Tony Morrison and Michael, and I was at this point of trying to decide what I would do after Princeton. I had no idea. I was very interested in dance and potentially doing my MFA in dance. I was also studying economics at the time. So my actual BA, my actual bachelor's degree is in economics. My dance degree is a minor. It's a certificate program at Princeton. They didn't have a full-time bachelor's program in dance then. Now they do. So yeah, so I was torn between these two sides of my brain. <laughs> so I had no idea like what I do in my life. And it was Michael Kaiser who said to me, well... If I were you, before I'd go into the arts, I would go into management. He was like, because I've seen so many artists struggle, particularly in the world of dance. He encouraged me to consider, consider doing management consulting for a few years. Tony Morrison, on the other hand, said, but don't forget your heart. Don't forget the arts. You know, if you're going to, as it were, sell out for a few years <laughs> because you're going to make some money, you might get tempted to stay in that. Don't forget, you know, the reason why you're doing this. This is actually to return back to the arts, to make the whole sector stronger, to be able to thrive yourself personally. Okay, so I did that for three years. I worked as a management consultant in New York, traveling all over the States, working on projects, particularly in a healthcare setting, because I couldn't do the financial management consulting. It wasn't an interest of mine. I wanted to work on projects that had some kind of social impact. So saving a local hospital, I'm trying to find, you know, ways to make kind of the healthcare sector more efficient. It was much more kind of, you know, uh, in my kind of like, uh, just bet, it just fit my, my value system, kind of as it were. Um, and then I moved to London to do my master's. So you kind of took what both of your sort of mentors at Princeton told you to do to heart. One saying, go for the financial stability, the other one saying, come back with the financial stability to the arts. And he decided to, in essence, land in London to kind of solidify that position and gain more knowledge. So you could further develop in that way. At this point, was there any doubt in your mind about the path that you were choosing? Because you probably went from a very stable position in management, consultancy, and it was, to an extent, very much kind of prescribed as a role and, you know, nine to five, paycheck, 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 whereas the art world isn't as prescribed and those patterns are not as, as obvious. So my real question is, what drove you to leave behind the stability, the relative stability and comfort into the firing pan, apart from pure passion? Well, I often kind of felt 
probably like many people that, you know, you always find it very difficult to find places where you actually fit in. So in many ways, I am a Louisiana boy, you know, through and through, but I didn't necessarily fit in there um, in that context. I couldn't see myself becoming a farmer, um, for example. Not that there's anything wrong with that at all. As a management consultant, I was very successful, as you're saying. Yes, good paychecks, in fact. <laughs> I was promoted. I was offered the opportunity for more promotions. But I decided to leave after three years because I did listen very closely to Michael Kaiser and Toni Morrison about gaining this experience and then using it to further yourself. So London was a break point. London was a place to start over effectively, right? To kind of come to a context where you had no history, to come here to do an MA in the creative and culture industry, to get a different kind of grounding. And because it wasn't in arts management, it was in the creative industries as a whole. I just had this more expansive kind of like view of arts and culture, which widened my perspective. But also just being in London was completely eye-opening from America, if the kind of bear in mind, right? We're talking, you know, I moved to London in 2002. London was a very different city at that point. But also the States is very different as well <laughs> at that point. And I don't want to kind of, let, kind of disparage any kind of my fellow Americans, but I felt that in the States, you didn't really have access to uh, kind of the international world in the sense of perspectives that were global. It all felt local. Like going from even from Louisiana to New York, where I lived as a management consultant, Sunaway kind of felt local. It didn't feel connected to the rest of the world in a way that London did when I moved here um, in 2002. That was really exciting. And you're, and you're right. Yes, I took a risk. I gave up everything. Everything. Like everything I owned, <laughs> effectively, to kind of move here. You know, all furniture, all whatever, to start over kind of from scratch. Was I a little bit frightened and concerned? Yes. Was also excited? Yes. Did I know I would end up sitting where I am now? No, not at all. <laughs> no idea. I just put in the hard work and effort. You know, I put 100% into everything that I was doing at that time. And what's interesting about studying when you're slightly older, because you have to imagine, I did my BA, I worked for three years, then I came and did my master's. And so I knew exactly what I wanted out of it. So I didn't come here just because I was just filling time. I came here actually to have this period of considering my next steps to bring together all of my various interests. And this MA allowed me to do that. And what was great about this MA was that there was a component that included a job placement. So I did my job placement at the Greenwich Theater, but I also took on additional placement at The Place, the dance center near King's Cross. And so I was doing these two internships while simultaneously doing the MA. And they were great programs. So with the Greenwich Theater, I got all this exposure to fundraising and development. I worked on a show called The Golden Boy, a musical, which has an entire cast of people of color. And it's about boxing and about like this young boxer who is, you know, uh, you know, making his way kind of like through life and through his community and, and to success. And I got support from Lennox Lewis for um, this production. And that's, I thought, actually, you're, you know, and, and the whole theater was like, wow, that was great. How did you manage to make that happen? I have no idea. Just again, determination and persistence <laughs> of and finding the right person to get access to Lennox Lewis to get support for this show, uh, which is great for them. Um, and at the place, I choreographed a performance weekend, which was soon after they reopened their building, which was developed by two incredible kind of architects. And so we wanted to create this weekend that would give you a different way of understanding the building through performance to get a sense of the architecture through movement, through dance. That was my first real kind of curatorial project, as it were. And as part of this project, I helped to produce a film, a dance film. And the artist, Benedict Johnson, who I worked with on this film, introduced me to the first of several major women who've, who kind of like changed my life. And that was Jude Kelly. Let's talk about that. Mentorship seems to be something that I would say from hearing your story is important to you and is something that you take quite seriously in the sense that a residency is an extended mentorship with living component at all levels. So just fasting forward a little bit and, and get, going through your story and come masticating it a little bit and and archiving and, and dusting. When did you feel that that first act of curation was going to lead into many more? Because sometimes we enter this world of creativity with the thought that we're going to, in one year, do so much. 
And sometimes the projects that we start in the first year are only the projects that we can realise in year five of those years, that Olympic. Give us a, a taste of those those highs and, and sometimes lows. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, let's just answer the question about mentoring. I think that's a very, a very important one. Throughout all of my career, I think I have always identified a few people, not just one, who could be my sounding board, who could be my critic, who could be a cheerleader, you know, for, for, for myself. I think partly that also comes um, from my need to create family around me all the time because I'm so far from my homeland, as it were, from Louisiana. And I grew up in a place that was very small. So it was a very there was a strong sense of community, a strong sense of family. And so I've gone through life kind of creating families, you know, <laughs> everywhere to have that support system. So I mentioned Jude Kelly a second ago. She was not only a mentor, but also and still is um, kind of like family to me. She gave me my first major job here kind of in the arts. It was a, a space called Bethel, which still exists. It's in South End and Liverpool and Peterborough at the moment. Um, but there was a London um, base which had an Arga oven at the heart of it. So the whole notion of cooking and hospitality and residencies were part of this, uh, this artistic laboratory space that Jude Kelly uh, set up that I helped to kind of run with our then director, uh, Colette Bailey. And we also did incredible projects in a community working with artists within the context of uh, regeneration. But without that break, without her trusting and believing in me, I would not be where I am now. And then without her continued kind of insight, knowledge, guidance, I would also not be where I am now. Now, as I said earlier, I got that job through working with another artist and doing a good job with him. And he was working with Jude and he just made an introduction. And then, you know, eventually it became a job. Because um, again, I did not know anyone in London. <laughs> you know, pretty much. I came in with a completely kind of clean slate. Now, in terms of curatorial projects and any projects that you work on in the arts, whether you're supporting a project or leading it, as you're very much kind of alluding to, it takes time and effort to bring together the resources to make things happen, whether it's in institution or outside of institution. And a key thing that, you know, one has to have in the arts is patience, but also persistence, right? In a very gentle, and then sometimes for way <laughs> to make things happen. For me, like the most exciting thing I get from kind of curating projects or producing projects is when you have an initial vision for something and you're able to sometimes convince, sometimes force <laughs> others to believe in this vision, to take this journey with you. And then when you arrive to destination, it is as you envisioned it. That is the most wonderful thing about kind of artistic production and curation is when you get to that point, it's like, ah, oh, this is exactly how I imagined it being there. Even though to get there, you may not always know what you're doing. <laughs> you might fell along the way Something might not quite be right, eh, eh, but then somehow it arrives at this moment, the doors open, you know, and it's exactly as you envisioned it. That is, for me, kind of one of the uh, the most kind of like energizing kind of uh, parts of being kind of in kind of the art world itself. But as you as you say, it's a slog, you know, um, a lot of things don't happen. You no, know, the resources don't fall into place or sometimes you just have to keep at it. And it may be that, yes, five, sometimes 10 years down the road, that little kernel of an idea finally kind of grows into to, to something else. Just going on the back of acorns and the development of ideas, we've gone from embryonic Aaron to university Aaron. And now we're going to get into real politique Aaron in the sense that when does Delfina start to feature in your story? Because I think... From what I'm guessing, from the way that you've you described your sort of like trajectory, there have been moments in which the components for Delfina were being formed without you realizing. Or was there a more, how can I put it, concerted effort going behind it in a, in a way? No, there was funny enough, there was no concerted effort. You would think that. Um, that based on everything I'm saying about, you know, because I am a person who can be highly strategic when he needs to be. But it's a, when it's about my own career, funny enough, when it's about my career, <laughs> probably the least strategic when I'm advising others, <laughs> artists, I'm the most strategic. 
you know, as ever, that's always the case. But I think you have kind of quite rightly kind of identified that all the things that kind of make the adult Aaron that also make the place I work in now, which I've been able to shape from scratch, I've picked up those components all along the way. And it's been through experiences, through people, previous mentors or previous jobs, where all these elements kind of came together and they crystallize into where I am now. So metal, for example, you know, again, there were lots of meals and and eating kind of at its core. There was uh, the focus on giving artists time and space, you know, it was a process-based space. Also including a strong network of people around artists, like Again, this whole notion of creating families and communities is also very important. So Delfina steps into this story from mental. Delfina and Trecanales and Dilwyn Smith, an artist that she supported perhaps 20 years uh, previous, came to Delfina to see what we were up to. At that time, Delfina was considering setting up a new foundation. At that point, she had for 25 or so years supported artists, initially through Delfina Studios, which was closing at that period, but she wasn't involved with the closure. She was, in fact, traveling throughout the Middle East and thinking about setting up a new international organization. So they came to Metal, and I gave them a tour of the space, and we talked about what she was considering setting up for Delfina Foundation. And I said, oh, that's great. I said, I'd love to kind of help you. I'm more than happy to, to kind of support, you know, for a fee, you know, to kind of help, kind of consult you on on setting it up. So it started that, that kind of relationship where, you know, it was a part friendship, but also part consultancy, trying to consider what this foundation could be. And in the process of doing that, we were discussing job roles. And when we were talking about the, you know, the organizational chart, kind of as it were, and the directors and whatnot, she's like, well, isn't this you? you know, isn't this your place? Are you going to be the director of the space? And I thought really hard about, I guess, again, yeah, next steps. And I thought really hard about metal you know, looking behind me and the possibility of a new kind of role in front of me that would be more international. And I got really excited by the possibility of Delfina Foundation being this international space and being able to travel and to experience different kind of world cultures, to create a network of support for artists in this country, here in London, but to connect that out to what's happening in in the rest of the world. And so I took a chance on this new initiative. I was 30 years old. Delfina was 80. There was 50 years in between us. But we had a very weird relationship, I guess I wouldn't say. I mean, it was lovely. Like, we 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 would do everything, joke, gossip, yell at each other. Um, <laughs> but we also jointly kind of made this space. We we built this program. In, and then eventually I got more and more autonomy, um, particularly as Delfina got older. It was more reliance on kind of me and the staff to take things things forward. In fact, one of our first employees here was Eva Langret, you know, one of the previous interviewees uh, for your program, uh, in fact, who's now the artist director of Freeze. Yeah, we had some great times in the early days of the foundation, but it, for me, I guess it was a significant opportunity to build something kind of from scratch that emulated the vision and ideas of the founder, but also considered me and my role and also our other, the other people who were involved. So from Eva to Dylan Smith, who was very much part of this initial story of founding the organization and the artist, you know, the first set of artists, and then all the 300 of artists that we've had since then, everyone's built into the story, built into this narrative. Everyone makes this organization what it is. It's not just me. Yes, maybe I'm seen more out publicly. Maybe my name is director, but everyone contributes to what this organization is. And that's where I want to really start asking you some more questions. We've got to the point where I think your trajectory has come to where you're 30. I'm not going to reveal your age. It's not, it's not wise. Um, <laughs> forever young. Let's just put it that way. Forever yes. young. Yeah. Forever, forever young. But this organization is one of my favorite in London because of the way it functions. But as we know, the pandemic and other factors have been, how can I put it? Rocking the world. In this time of upheaval, how do you feel like globalism has, in essence, been impacted? You know, the idea of expanding outwards and having an outward-facing program with people from around the world, inclusiveness, and, and that cosmopolitan spirit that you've been chasing from that moment in Louisiana when you were sort of, in essence, watching things from afar, and now that you're in the middle of it, where do you think things are going? 
I'm going to start asking you more visionary questions because it feels a little bit more of the moment. Just to give a little bit of context to this though. So, um, you know, at Delphina Foundation, very quickly, we host residencies and we develop public programs around those residencies. They're often based around certain themes. We work with the entire world. We have about 40 residencies a year. A lot of our program is based around hospitality, intimacy, globalism, kind of as you're discussing, transnationalism, you know, looking at projects, ideas, and issues across uh, shared concerns rather than looking at them as individual notions. So I always talk about the difference between cultural exchange, which to me is often based on differences, and artistic exchange, which is often shared based on shared approaches, if that makes sense. So cultural exchange being based on differences and artistic exchange being based on shared approaches by artists. So the pandemic, you know, affected every single aspect of our work. I mean, I was, it felt like I was running an embassy, you know, in March, 2020, trying to repatriate kind of artists back home. We had artists going to Nigeria, Taiwan, Brazil, Canada, Europe, borders were closing, you know, trying to get them. <laughs> I really did feel like it was an embassy kind of like suddenly. And it, it felt that we were then suddenly kind of retreating kind of backwards in some kind of way, right? We, everyone went home, sat home in isolation, socially dis- distancing themselves because of the pandemic. It's felt like a complete kind of reversal in one way of the, the kind of work that we've been promoting at Delfina Foundation. Yet and still, platforms like Zoom, Teams, and even old Skype, right? Were those mechanisms of bringing us back together, you know, online. And so whilst the pandemic was detrimental to our work in terms of facilitating artist mobility, um, supporting international ideas and commissions. In a different way, it, it through kind of hybrid working, it's expanded the possibilities of what we can achieve and how we can connect at the same time. Yet and still, we also double down on the fact that in real life person meetings do matter. It's significantly different when you have energies, people in the same room, the kind of ideas that can spark from tangents, which you can't have on Zoom because often, you know, a Teams or Skype or Zoom meeting are very agenda focused, right? Like even with us, there's a set of questions we're going down, you know, to kind of of address. Whereas like, you know, of course, you know, this is a different conversation we're having. I can go on a tangent and you allow me to to do it. You edit it out. But... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but, you know, but, you know, in a context of a, like, I don't know, let's say a meeting or even a studio visit with an artist, you know, if you're not sitting around the same table, it's difficult to have the side chat. And for a lot of artistic practitioners, the side chat becomes the main medium. <laughs> you know, right? You know, this one little thing opens up a whole window of possibility that like suddenly gets lost. So, you know, we have a real kind of like opportunity now to reconnect in such a way, which we're doing at Delphina Foundation now. And I see a lot of my colleagues starting to resume their activities and programs as well. Um, But we do have to think about the ongoing impact of the pandemic. We haven't all recovered yet. As much as London is maskless, there is still a pandemic and there is still a mask over some of the negative impact that the pandemic will have on institutions going forth. That makes sense. I mean, how many how many jobs for young people have been stunted by the result of this? You know, if you're a young curator who graduated from art school before or even during the pandemic, right? How do you kickstart your career when so many jobs are being cut by institutions? You know, how do you be independent and nimble and entrepreneurial when funding is also being cut? You know, and there's like there's a lack of sponsorship. On the other hand, there's a lot of space <laughs> because. <laughs> you know, real estate is not as active as it was before and some projects went slow, slow down. So maybe there are other opportunities, but I think the opportunity probably here is really around the idea of collective working, right? Of coming together and joining forces, which has always been a strength of the art world, of kind of particularly smaller scale institutions, but also kind of individuals thinking about the collective, uh, thinking about collaboration, co-creation, etc. So... You threw up so many challenges at the same time as opportunities there. It's not straightforward. <laughs> it's it's never straightforward. And this is a time where I think it's a little bit more free-flowing. So you can ask me questions as well as I ask me questions. But it's incumbent on this Buckingham Trend episode for me to also ask you questions on identity. Because you sort of elided very sort of beautifully across skating in a way um, as to 
aspects of her identity and it's something that drives you but also is something that I see is challenged. So the question is, how do you identify in, in your manifold intersections? Let's just put it that way. A very interesting question, I have to say. When I started this podcast, you know, I was very quick to tell you I'm from Louisiana. If you don't know what I look like, you wouldn't know that I'm a person of color. You wouldn't know that, you know, I'm a Creole. I'm Creole, actually, which I'm very proud about, I have to say. In Louisiana, uh, I grew up culturally Black. And the reason I say that in that way is that Louisiana has the one drop of African or Black blood means that you're Black, right? So I grew up initially just thinking I was just that one thing because on my birth certificate, my mother and father are both listed as Negro on it. Of course, as I grew older, as a young boy, you know, I learned a bit more about what Creole is. I understand that around me, Creole French is spoken. None of my generation, well, very few of my generation can speak it now, unfortunately, but our parents did. The music is still sung in Creole. The food is spicy. It's amazing. It's right. And it comes from this incredible heritage that we have in Louisiana, which I wasn't very clear about until I was adult, Aaron. Going back and looking back at where I grew up with this global perspective that I now have. And I remember it once being in Nigeria in Lagos and seeing the sun setting. And it was something about the way in which the sun, the size of the sun and the glow and the, and the color of that glow that reminded me of the same sun, sunset that I saw driving over the Mississippi River when I went home on Christmas. And I thought, ah, oh, it is just one world. But something about that connection of those two places. And then later finding out that I was 15% Nigerian, you know, when I did a genealogy test, maybe also other like the connections that in my mind just was conjured up at that moment. But anyway, in Louisiana, you know, we growing up, you know, with both parents identified as Negro and culturally Black means that I wasn't actually considering the fact that I'm also 10% Italian, that, you know, I have Filipino roots, that, you know, Louisiana was, of course, a French and a Spanish colony, both of which are also sit in my ancestry, right? So I think as an adult, whilst I absolutely see myself 100% as a person of color, I'm looking at all those colors now as, as an adult in a very different way. So I just returned from Artissima in Turin, was walking around the city museum to see an exhibition, and I saw a name on like the little placard about the building. Uh, who lived there. And I was like, I know the surname because <laughs> I've seen this surname and my own family tree, you know? So I think this thing about kind of like, how do you identify yourself is that I'm understanding my identity is very complex and it is all of those things. But because it's all of those things, it has also made me look at diversity in that particular kind of way. So at Delfina Foundation, we've always very kind of like strongly tried to give space, voice, opportunities, however you want to phrase it, to curators and artists from all different backgrounds. It's about actually, rather than thinking about how do you make this story of culture as complex as it actually is. Too often headlines about media, about art, it's just so simplistic, right? It's, it's, there's no space for gray. There's no space for nuance. We know that the, the kind of value that you and I are talking about in terms of social and cultural value is a mix of so many different types of influences, interests, investments. And I say investments, not in the financial sense. I mean, in terms of like, you know, cultural investment, kind of as it were. It's much more than just those kind of singular things that media headlines often reduce art and culture to. So I think I've taken a step to completion. No, <laughs> I, 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 I do. Have I answered your question? You All did. Right. You, you did, did answer, answer your question. question. Yeah. And it's something that I'm remiss to do, but I feel like it's also necessary as two people on the LGBT spectrum. Has that in any way influenced you? Sort of like the Creole nature of your background and that being the basics but there is another side as well which is which some people see as oppositional in certain debates they they ask you to choose either either way which i don't think is healthy and it's not part of our conversation here so i want to give life to all of you i think that has also come a lot into my kind of practice as a curator, as a producer, again, of trying to identify kind of ways in which I can kind of support uh, communities that are very important to me, the communities that aren't necessarily always getting a space or a place to really kind of uh, talk about multiplicity and these very difficult kind of like subjects. When I say multiplicity, I also mean it in terms of, you know, race, in terms of kind of sexuality, gender, all that, all that sort of stuff. And I think you see it through the kind of work that I've kind of produced 
independently, but also kind of as an institution. It's interesting because as an institution, like, you know, like this whole thing about quotas and like we have to go back, you know, recently to look at kind of what are we doing around diversity? And I was like, well, actually, we've done it all. Like without having to go back and think, well, did we do this and that? Like, no, we've always had more women. We've always had more people of color. We've always had a strong LGBTQIA kind of like support for the Like it's always just been there naturally because of the team here, you know, not just because of myself, because of the team and how we kind of like see the world and how we kind of want to kind of acknowledge that the world isn't just one kind of homogenous kind of like place, but also within the kind of diversity that we're, that we want to also promote to also understand that does it, that there's also very different views within that diversity, as it were. So this interview is going really well. I just want to get to the point where I'm realizing that we've gone through quite a lot. Well, can I say something? One thing, one thing I want to add to you about the, how do people see me is another, because I, I remember a question. I don't remember all the questions, but I remember there was something about, maybe it wasn't, but something about how people perceive me in terms of race. Like, so uh, maybe that's, that's maybe missing my thinking, like whether, regardless of how I see myself, right? People see me, right? And whether they see of me when they look at me. And now I feel there's much more visibility for those of us who are kind of of color, who are running institutions or generally doing a good job. And partly this is because there are these diversity quotas. It's not really a quota, but there's an expectation that institutions have to be more diverse. And that is a good good expectation. Don't get me wrong. It's just that, you know, sometimes we have to kind of question if we're being sought after because we're of color. You know, now I don't think this is necessarily the case in some of the people you've interviewed and some of my colleagues here. We are, we do a really good job, right? We just didn't get the visibility before because for various other reasons. But now why are we getting this vis- visibility has to also be kind of questioned, you know. Let's go into that because the art world is, I wrote up a little manifesto as to why I decided to do this podcast and why I wanted to complicate the discussions and literally bring race into the directorships, Right. Because many people do um, directorial interviews all the time and they just have bland questions about the art market and all of that stuff. And I wanted to complicate that because I've noticed that over the last three years or five years, there has been specifically in London as a microcosm in the UK and the wider UK, which we'll get to another point. I wanted to focus on my hometown and really look at the fact that London has one of the biggest populations of ethnic minority people anywhere in the UK, the world, or Europe, and the representation, the rate of representation within the cultural sector, within one of the most versatile and one of the most resilient sectors, actually, is woeful. So this is a way of me kind of celebrating, but also advocating on behalf of people who are doing well, not just by the dent of their racial identity, but because they have something interesting to say. I think that's why uh, I wanted to do this podcast with you for that very, very reason of, of actually trying to understand, you know, kind of each of us, because we all come from, you know, very different contexts and we all kind of made it to where we are through kind of different kind of like means. Um, and we're all doing a great job, <laughs> you know, right? So, okay. So that's, that's kind of has to be said. But then like I look at the context now and I look at how things have kind of shifted and changed when all these institutions posted a black square um, last summer. And, you know, when I'm invited to join a board or to consider, you know, the CEO of blah, blah, blah organization, now in the back of my mind, I'm not only thinking, well, of course, do you think I can do this job? But do you want me to do this job because of what I look like at the same time? Because I know that helps you fulfill a certain thing that helps you secure more funding that, you know, like those sort of questions now circulate a lot in my mind when these opportunities come up rather than just, are you good enough for it? I know I'm good enough for it, by the way, but, but it's, just, you know, yeah. it's giving pink pound, but also black pound. You know, because there's also, there used to be a black penalty, which seems to have now been turned into a black, how can I put it, golden ticket. Let's just put it that way. It's interesting seeing how the creative sector in in the UK has become more diverse. Just looking at the way in which Freeze London, just in a very general way, not speaking about any individuals, but just like, there's been more shows of black artists by UK-based institutions or gallery specifically, this year, but many of them are not of the UK. No, no. And and still, I mean, the larger kind of like board structure and staff structure of the institutions 
don't reflect their programming <laughs> either. Look, it's kind of issue that needs actual financial investment and also needs an investment of us, the community, to kind of like make it work. There's been a lot of initiatives that have tried and failed. And it's been frustrating sometimes sitting on calls with colleagues, like other institutional directors from all walks of life. And everyone recognizing this is a problem, but then... It feels like no change is actually happening. And so, and, it, and it's frustrating for us who are of color to kind of be almost put in a position of being like, well, you give us the answer. It's like, well, no, it's not. Sorry, excuse me. Wait, wait, hold up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I, like I, I can't say how many reports I've read with the answers in them because my <laughs> eyes would glaze over and I would become a different person at the end of it. But if you could make a little three-point manifesto, what would be the three things that you would give for free? I don't want you to give me a consultancy. Just give for free to people who want to do inclusivity, equity, diversity, those buzzwords that mean something but can also be banalized at the same time. Good question. I'm not sure we're going to answer it. <laughs> here on this podcast let me think about it though a good three point because now i feel like you do have to pay me for this uh be your diversity consultant first of all is like listen to the community around you as an institution or as an individual and understand what their needs are i think that's one kind of key thing understand your community but make that understand your community listen to your community work with your community that's actually probably my three points yeah, and however you decide define what community is, you know, for you as an individual or for you as an organization, that's for you to, to decide. But I think those kind of like three points is like, you know, understand, listen, work with, or the three kind of like points of, of being able to kind of make, make inclusivity and equality work. One of the last two questions will be just the following on the future, Aaron. About the whole art world? <laughs> the future. Give us the, how can I put it, your crystal ball, if you had mm. one. How do you foresee things within the next 10 years, if you foresee things changing? Mm. Like, we're in a time warp currently. We seem to go around in, in diversity and inclusion circles all the time. But just in, as a cultural leader. I am so, so excited by the generation behind me, about people like you. I mean, like in, incredible kind of like already people I'd consider to be a thought leader. I mean, your generation compared to mine, I feel has so much more access to information, partly because of the internet, partly of the fact that networking is easier, the fact that you are ahead of us in terms of identifying what the challenges are, right? You're already thinking about what the solutions could be. And there's a real strong sense of ethics and of care within the next generation and the generation after them in particular as well. So I'm just very excited about what's to come kind of from kind of these incredible kind of like new voices. I think the opportunity, I'm not saying a challenge, the opportunity is for us who are slightly ahead is to kind of create the kind of platforms so that all of you can kind of give voice to kind of your generation to feel part of the community. I think that's where, that's where the exclusion starts to happen, right? When someone feels like they're not part of it. So how can we kind of create and open these spaces? Whether it's through programming, whether it's through mentoring, whether it's through residencies that we're doing, that I'm doing at Delfina Foundation. How do we create those kind of openings kind of like for kind of all of you? Obviously, I see the future becoming more of a hybrid space. I think that a lot of people would agree with me in terms of what the pandemic has forced us to do was to engage with technology in a very different way. I mean, think about before the pandemic, when you had to Skype in a speaker for a panel. It was, it was, the, it was you know, everyone would already cringe. No one would want to come to the talk. You know, the, techno the internet was all going to let you down. Like, you know, the speed, everything. For sure, that was going to happen. Now that still happens, but... <laughs> We kind of accept it as, you know, part of our kind of like visual language now that there'll be pixels and a frozen screen and and also our kind of, uh, as it were, the sound will maybe whatever. We kind of accepted that. We've gotten over that now. And getting over that to some degree and also in some cases getting much better at presenting it means that the kind of connections we can form can be much, much, much greater. And uh, we can save energy and, and, and the environment from excess travel. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I see the excitement around this hybrid way of working and networking. Um. I also have an extra question, which is the last one before I let you go. And it is pearls of wisdom. Pearls of wisdom. I frequently say this, but I think it's a very important kind of like uh, piece of advice is to really 
consider the role of kind of patrons within your work, individuals with resources. Often artists and curators and institutions sometimes look at patrons as some kind of like strange beings, <laughs> you know, who they feel in some way kind of subservient to. Because I kind of see the world as one kind of like big community and one big family, I've always really cultivated those relationships with patrons, just like I cultivate those kind of with artists. Because I do see patrons and artists, collectors and artists, as as two ends of kind of the arts ecosystem. Sometimes they don't meet. And I think that should be more meetings of these two. But my, my point here is that patrons can enable so much for kind of young curators, for institutions, for artists. And I think developing a way of building relationships with patrons is so kind of like key and critical rather than being afraid of money, being afraid. Because, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is there are some incredible patrons in the world. We Again, the those that we see in the media are often ones who get the bad, <laughs> the bad rep. There's some really amazing philanthropists and those who really want to make a difference, those who do want to support young artists, though that have the right intentions behind them, that have relatively clean money. I mean, look, there's a whole conversation about whether money is clean or dirty. That's, that's another, just a whole another conversation. But my point is, is cultivate those relationships, just like you cultivate relationships with artists, because patrons will also be a friend of yours for life. They will follow you around as you are doing some random independent project in a pop-up, but they might also be there for you when, you, when you're when you at the institutional level. And they'll also help you secure jobs. They also will kind of help cross-pollinate kind of like ideas of yours. They have access to information you don't because of where they are situated. So I always say that to also artists is to think of also developing a mentor that might be a collector or a patron, someone who's like maybe not immediately what you consider a person you wouldn't necessarily immediately consider, but but yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I've articulated that very well, but it's a very very important kind of like pearl of pearl of wisdom. And I know people are gonna say, well, wait, wait, how do I meet a patron? How do I meet a collector? How do, da, 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 da. you know? You are you are meeting them. You're not identifying you know the ones that maybe could kind of support to help you. And I don't mean necessarily financially. I mean in in much broader broader ways. I'm going to now say thank you very much for having sat with me for the last hour and discussed your life. <laughs> this is your life. I, I should be handing you a key somewhere. I don't know, somewhere beautiful. But I'm going to say thank you and I'm going to also stop recording. Thank you, Eduardo. Thank you all for tuning in, Trend Buckers, to Aaron Cesar's Bucking the Trend conversation with me. The conversation was a ritual. I really take heart with what Aaron and I discussed at the end, especially towards social justice and the place which we all play or the parts which we all play in the fight for social equality. Moreover, the idea of self in relation to institutions and architectures that are beyond our control. But even when we are ourselves institutions, as Aaron Cesar is, he is an institution by the Delvina, Delvina Foundation, as institutions are, are made out of people and, and architecture surrounding those people which makes up that background, how even then there are still some limitations, which spawns many a question surrounding what is influence, how does one wield it, etc. This episode has been very fun to partake in. I hope you've all enjoyed it. Remember, please follow me on Instagram under Eduardo Aesthetic for In Conversation and more projects that I am part of. Remember to like, share, and comment. Remember to also, if you would like, if you know of any institutions that would like to also be sponsors or underwrite this 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 podcast, please get in touch via email or via Instagram. Thank you in advance. What will be, will be. Whatever will be, will be. I'll see you next year, next year. Que sera, sera. Goodbye.